Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of a new podcast called Pop Art. I am your My How Time Flies host, Howard Kasner. The concept of Pop Art is for my illustrious guest to choose a movie from popular culture, and I will choose a film that relates to it in some way from the classic art side of cinema. Today, my guest is filmmaker Michelle Allen, and she has chosen the brilliantly funny ensemble movie Best in Show, and I in turn have chosen the somewhat darker, more violent, more trenchant Series 7, The Contenders, both mockumentaries about competitions. So to begin, uh, Michelle, uh, would you please uh, introduce yourself? Uh, Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's fun to be here. I am an independent filmmaker. I write, uh, direct, and produce. I've done four feature comedies, including uh, what what I've been calling the first lesbian comedy trilogy with Butch Jamie, Heterosexual Jill, and S&M Sally. And right now I'm editing the fifth feature that I directed, which is my first dramedy uh, called Maybe Someday. Great. And we're all looking forward to that. I I hope the the coronavirus doesn't interrupt things for too long a period and we can see that at some point. Yeah. Um, we do have a little mm-hmm. shooting to do, but um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Let's begin with the movie Best in Show. Before we begin the discussion, I will give some info. Best in Show is a mockumentary about contestants and their dogs competing in a Westminster Kennel Club dog show called the Mayflower Dog Show here. It was released in 2000. It was directed by Christopher Guest. The screenplay is attributed to Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy, though it must be said that it is mainly improvised. The outline was like 16 pages and everything else was then improvised by the cast. And what a cast. Well, there's a whole host, so I'll try to get through them as quickly as possible. Uh, Jennifer Coolidge, Christopher Guest, John Michael Higgins, uh, Michael Hitchcock, Eugene Levy, Jane Lynch, Michael McLean, Catherine O'Hara, Parker Posey, Jim Piddock, Fred Ward, Ed Begley, and Bob Balaban. Can't go too wrong. So let's begin. Why did you choose this film? Um, I chose this film because it's basically my favorite comedy, and I would also think it's probably easily in my top five favorite movies. And the other reason is because I, when I first saw it, it was probably about 18, 19 years ago, it made such a impact on me as like an up-and-coming filmmaker and just Mm -hmm. sort of showing me a style of comedy that I hadn't seen in a movie before. I was in my early 20s and I just seen like more sort of broader comedy and I loved the deadpan style of humor and sort of the grounded realism behind everything which to me just accentuated the jokes so much more because everyone took them so so seriously. And you've seen it again recently. How did you feel about it upon a, a new viewing? You know, it's funny because this is actually the third time I've seen it. The second time was maybe about 10 years ago. And I was kind of disappointed, I think, partly because it's built up so much in my mind. Because, as I said, it's like, oh, it's one of my you know, favorite comedy and top five movies. And then I think it was watching it this time, I was a little bit let down because I think, obviously, it's a good movie, you know, and there's a lot of interesting characters and it's very well done. But since comedy relies so much on the element of surprise, I think, like, with repeat viewings, you just you just don't have that element of surprise. And so it was fun to revisit some of the jokes. But and I did catch like some new jokes that I forgot about or um, didn't maybe notice the first time. But it was kind of kind of disappointing, unfortunately. Uh, of course, that's not really 
unusual, especially for comedy, but it's also possible that you may see it sometime again in the future and go, oh, yeah, this is great. This is how I remember it. It's very strange how sometimes that works when you see things a few times. And at some point you sort of said, well, I've seen this, you know, and then sometimes later on when you see it again, you'll come back to it and say, oh, yeah, it really is as good as it was. But sometimes, actually, you never do. There are some films I saw when I was much younger that I thought were great, and I watch now and I go, okay, you know. Right, yeah. It just really depends where you are, where you are in your life, and and everything really changes, so. What would you say were some of your uh, favorite parts of the movie? Because it is a movie made up of parts. Yeah, I, you know, of course, I love the competition. I think Fred Willard, who plays the really wacky announcer, (laughs) he was so great. And I think he just had a lot of the best like one liners. And in the guy who played opposite him, I don't know uh, what actor. Jim Piddick. Okay, yeah. And he was just like a great straight man and just really sort of like subtle about it. And so that that's a lot of fun. And then the other parts I really like were Parker Posey's character I really liked. And um, just like watching her and her husband, but mainly her like freaking out and of course like projecting all of their shit and all of their anxiety and anger and aggression onto their dog. Right. Who um, seems to actually be taking it rather well, considering. Yeah, I was watching the dog in some of the scenes when they were just like yelling and I just thought it was kind of funny like the dog was like pretty cool like and acting along but and then and then I love how the movie opens and it opens with the dog and that couple as well in the therapist's office talking about somebody that that you assume is probably their child or something who has watched them have sex and then it cuts to and reveals the dog which is a surprise if you haven't seen the movie before and that's a nice way to set up the movie because it's really serious and then you see this dog laying on like this couch in the psychiatrist's office and I thought that was just a really good joke to kind of kick it off with. Right. Speaking of the Fred Ward and the Jim Piddick, I mean, one of the things is that Fred Ward was instructed to do absolutely no research on dogs and on dog shows. Absolutely nothing. And Jim Piddick was told to do a ton of research on dogs and dog shows. Oh, that's interesting. And Right. And that's why that dynamic came out. And why one of the reasons why Fred Willard is so funny is because Jim Piddick is so serious. And if you don't know, some people think that Jim Piddick is actually not an actor, that he's actually mm-hmm. really a, a commentator uh, for, for a dog show. Right. Because he gets it so exact. Yeah, that's funny. And I noticed that um, Fred, of course, like compares it a lot to sports because that's kind of his frame of reference and everything. But yeah, the role is actually based on, is it Gargiola? Uh, Dave Gargiola, Gargiola, I probably got that wrong. A sports commentator who at some oh. point also became a commentator for the Westminster dog show. So that's why that is because it's based on this sportscaster. Oh, I see. Okay. And he is. He's absolutely hysterical. Fred Ward is wonderful. He got nominations from the National Society of Film Critics and the New York Film Critics for Best uh, Best Supporting Actor. He, he didn't quite win, but he is perhaps, yes, one of the big highlights of that movie. He really, really catches it perfectly. I think I first saw it probably when it came out in 2000. I can't remember. I know I'd seen this Spinal Tap. I don't know if I had seen Waiting for Guffman before this or after this mm-hmm. but probably before this so i think i saw waiting for guffman on home video or something got the video for it and like you i just i it just thought it was really loved it thought it was wonderful loved the ensemble it's one of these that 
often when I see improvised pieces, you can see the improvisation and it's here, they're so good at it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you forget they're improvising. Sometimes you actually are kind of convinced that these are, are these are real people. So I really loved it. I, and then, you know, I, I love Waiting for Guffman and this is Final Tap. And, and when I saw it again, I still like it very much. I think like you, I do see everything coming. I know what's coming up. And perhaps also one of the things that I find interesting about it, and you can sort of comment on this, is that, you know, Christopher Guest never liked any of his films being called mockumentaries. Oh, okay. I didn't he, know that. Yeah, because he never felt that he was really mocking these people. And I think to a degree he has a point. I think he's a little wrong. I think he actually, to some degree, they are to some right. degree mocking these people, but they're not m that mean about it. They're not, they're not mean. They don't look down on them. Mm -hmm. They're just having a lot of fun with it. It's sort of like, we're not laughing at you. We're laughing with you. Mm -hmm. So I have no idea if, if, if their response would be, but I'm not laughing or not. But I find that a bit different from other mockumentaries where other mockumentaries often just really want to satirize people and mm -hmm. hit down. They, they don't hit up, they hit down. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it's interesting, you know, it's an interesting comment because when you first were talking about it, I guess for me as a writer and as an actor, I feel like I always approach characters in terms of not looking down upon them or judging them because I feel like that's how you bring authenticity to a movie. So, you know, I can't necessarily weigh in on other films versus this film, but, you know, maybe I could venture to say that this film Six, you know, because I do think it's one of the, the better mockumentaries out there. I personally think it's the best, but I haven't seen all of them. A couple, There's a couple that I want to see. So I think that maybe helps invite the viewer in. Because on a certain level, you, you need to care about the characters. And I think if you put them down too much, then it creates too much distance between the audience and, and the characters. Yes, I, I think that is true, if you can't care about them. I mean, the only ones I think we ever get close to not caring about, of course, is uh, Parker Posey and her husband, who are really, <laughs> I mean, they're very funny, but I think originally before this was even thought up, before Christopher Guest came up with the idea of doing this, he came up with an idea of two characters. I think he saw them in a coffee shop and he called them the catalog couple. Uh-huh. And then when he did the show, I think that's one of the things he gave to Parker Posey and to, I never can remember who is who, I gave them that as a way to begin creating their characters, because that's how they met. They're both reading catalog at a Starbucks across the street from each other. From another Starbucks, yeah. Right, so yes. And of course, the heart of the movie is the Catherine O'Hara and the Eugene Levy characters, mm -hmm. who, and all the movies seem to have such a charismatic, I mean, they just work so well together. Yeah. And I think they have, you know, since SCTV and now on, of course, Schitt's Creek. Oh, yeah. I, lo I love Schitt's Creek. Yeah. I can't wait for the wedding. <laughs> Give me the wedding. I want that wedding. Yeah. Because you know. I actually wasn't a huge Catherine O'Hara fan until Schitt's Creek. And, and, and obviously she's great in this movie. I think I uh, some of the other characters just stood out to me a little bit more. But I really think in Schitt's Creek, she really shines. And 
she's so unique and quirky in that. Right. Have you seen most of the Christopher Guest films? Yeah, I've seen most of them because I love this movie. I This is the first Christopher Guest movie I saw and the first mockumentary I saw. So I circled back and saw the older ones. Unfortunately, This is Spinal Tap didn't resonate with me at all. Waiting for Guffman... I liked, but I think um, my expectations were so high. And I think, I personally think Best in Show was better, but that's hard to say because I also saw it first. And I don't know if I would have seen Waiting for Guffman first if I would have felt differently about that. And uh, then I saw For Your Consideration and uh, Mighty Wind. So pretty much the, the big main ones, I think. But as far as I'm concerned, I think this one's the best one. And I think even just the nature of the dogs, like also kind of just brings a lot of charm to it too. And a lot of something that's, endearing and kind of draws you in or at least did for me this time you know well the dogs in many ways are also they parallel their owners yeah christopher guest plays this sort of down home tennessee bait shop seller and he has this bloodhound who actually looks something (laughs) like him and the shih tzu is is sort of preeny and pretty and very stylish style Mm -hmm. just like his masters and then you know I can't remember what Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy have, but they have this cute, perky little... uh, They have a what? A A terrier. Yeah, Yeah, which my partner said was kind of like the working class person's dog, I guess. So it kind of reflected them. Yes. Uh, Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think of that, but that's that's actually very good. And to some degree, I guess, in a way, that might have been reflected in the movie when Jim Piddick said, well, it's kind of a surprise that it did as well as it did. He simply didn't expect it. And I don't follow the dog shows. I don't follow anything like that. But sometimes that happens. All of a sudden, a dog that has not been considered to be, has gone out of favor, is not as popular or anything like that, suddenly wins or does well at the kennel show and suddenly becomes a very popular kind of dog to have. Yeah, and I don't I don't know a lot about it either. But yeah, I mean, and of course, like in terms of the context of the movie, like you definitely, I think in general, try to to pick something unexpected, as opposed to like the poodle who's won the past two years, you kind of know if you're savvy in terms of movie watching that that one's probably not going to win and, and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, generally, as a writer, you try to look for the least the least expected one, you know, right, especially in this. Yes, yeah, I felt the same way. The others were so they're almost too good. <laughs> You know, and the poodle was too pretty. You know, the shih tzu was too pretty. So this this brought up the underdog, uh, the one they couldn't even afford the the hotel. Yeah, so they, yeah. They got put in the the cleaning closet. Right, and I thought actually because I don't remember that from last time, and this time I thought they were going to do more with that, and it was funny we never we never kind of followed up with that. But I thought it was a funny yeah. premise. Also, while well, Ed Begley is going around talking about it. There is a reference to this spinal tap when he shows, I think, photographs of a of a hotel room that was completely, utterly destroyed by a rock group. Right, by a rock band. Yeah, okay, yeah. And and that rock band is the spinal tap. Uh, I see. Yeah. Did that. This is also my favorite out of all the Christopher guests. Mm. I haven't seen Mascot, so I can't really uh, speak to that one. I haven't seen Spinal Tap in a long time, so I'm not sure what what I uh, what I would think of it now. But I certainly like it very much. But I think after this, I sort of go for Waiting for Guffman and Spinal Tap, and then A Mighty Wind. And mm-hmm. I actually despise for your consideration. <laughs> how, how come? Well, I just found it kind of astonishing that people who have been involved in the movie industry for as long as these people have. 
Uh-huh. Have absolutely no idea how one gets an Oscar nomination or wins an Oscar. <laughs> and I thought if they had really, really gone after what it takes to get an Oscar and make a mockumentary out of that, then I think it would be funny. I but see. I'm sort of, yeah, I'm sort of going, all these people are wondering if they're going to get an Oscar nomination. And I'm going, you know, by the first two weeks of December, whether you're going to have a chance of getting an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. You know, by the Critics Awards coming out and, you know, by the nominations. And once the Golden Globes come out and you don't get a nomination, <laughs> you are probably not going to get an Oscar nomination, you know, and the SAG Awards and things like that. And I'm going, these people have, they have to know how this system works, yet they seem to have no idea how this system works. And I thought they missed a really great opportunity here. Yeah, and that's a good point. And when I saw that movie, that was before I was in the film industry. And so I actually watched the trailer the other day and I was like, you know, this would be interesting to revisit now that I know so much more. And there's probably a lot of maybe hopefully inside jokes and things maybe I wouldn't have picked up on last time. But that's funny. Like you say, it's not really realistic. (laughs) Yeah. But of course, one of the biggest and most fun is how they handle the gay aspects of the story. Mm-hmm. that Michael McCain and, oh gosh, and again, I'm not sure who played his partner. The, the, you know, the movie has a lot of fun with them, but they're very likable and they're very nice and you're, you're, uh, they seem very loving, uh, a couple. And then the big surprise when Jane Lynch kisses uh, Jennifer Coolidge in the camera and McLean and his, his partner just sort of look each other and said, oh, okay. You know, there goes that. <laughs> right. And the the gay couple, yeah, they were they were interesting because obviously the one I don't know his name, but the one was was, you know, kind of more the more stereotypical gay guy. And I right. and, and it's very easy to kind of I don't know, have kind of dumbed down that humor, but he was able to he was able to sort of be cliche gay without being cliche, if that makes sense. Right. And so right. he would say that she would say the things and say the jokes and say he needs more kimonos and all those kinds of things. But he did it in a way kind of maybe like you were saying earlier of treating the characters with respect that it wasn't a negative sort of stereotypical portrayal of a gay guy. I'm like, yeah, like it, I think it like it did a good job with that. And then I, I remember the first time I watched this movie, I could tell, you know, just sort of like my gaydar, like with that Jane Lynch, because this was obviously before she was, you know, the Jane Lynch we know now. And right. she just has like a gay vibe to her. So I was like, oh, she's totally gay and kind of wondering if there was something happening between her and the other woman. And so that was a lot of fun the first time I saw the movie to see them come together and, and also just have like two gay couples in a movie at that time that we right. didn't really get a lot of that back then. I believe I'm probably quite a bit older than you. So, of course, I grew up during the changing times of how Mm -hmm. gays were portrayed in movies. And even by 2000, you would still be a bit queasy when you thought Mm -hmm. of a gay character being in a movie because you just didn't know how it was going to go. Were they going to be ridiculed? Were they going to be made fun of? Were they going to be butt of a jokes? Were they the ones who are going to have to die? And I think I even wasn't sure I wanted to watch Waiting for Guffman because mm-hmm. I was a little afraid of how that gay character was going to be portrayed and then I saw it and I realized that no this was a great gay character and I think the same thing happened here and not only that you're right there wasn't just one there were two mm-hmm. when there's no need for there to be two that's a choice that was made by the filmmakers and for sure, and especially because, like, I feel like this isn't gay niche film, and so especially at the time to have gay characters in a movie that's not really pigeonholed for that community, I think is kind of right. a big too. 
the film did very well with, with the critics. I think it did very well money-wise. It was nominated for the Golden Globe. Fred Willard got nominations from National Society of Film Critics and the New York Film Circle Critics Awards for Supporting Actor. And it's very highly regarded still and has a very a strong following. I really like this movie, and I think it was a really good choice. Good, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's definitely a lot of fun, and it's a lot of fun, too, of course, to see these same actors play sometimes very different characters in the different Christopher Guest movies. And also, of course, it's exciting just to see, like, basically what feels like, I don't know if it really is the beginning of Jane Lynch's career, and be able to see her and kind of, like, this has probably, I think, launched her out there and, to you know, enabled her to be kind of like who she is today. Right. I mean, she's, she's not someone who is a traditional actor or even movie star. She's a character mm-hmm. actor. And her career did really soar, you know, mm-hmm. after this. Mm-hmm. And yes, she just, she's now Jane Lynch. Everybody yeah. knows Jane Lynch. So with that, let's uh, move on then to the next movie. And this was my choice. It is Series 7, The Contenders. The story is a satirical tale on television reality show, especially reality show competitions. The premise is that five people are chosen at random, like a lottery, then joined by the winner of the previous uh, series, because this is series seven, so this is the seventh time this has been done. Basically, they're all given guns, and they're told, last one standing is the one that wins. You're out to kill each other, and that's what the basis of the very, very, very successful uh, television show is. Mm -hmm. It was released in 2001, written and directed by... Daniel Minahan. It stars uh, Brooke Smith, Meredith Weaver, Glenn Fitzgerald, Mary Lou, Louise Burke, Richard Venture, Michael Kachek. I think those are the six contenders, as well as Susan Shopmaker. And Will Arnett is the one who does the narration and I think appears at the very end. Is this the first time you've seen the film? It is, yeah, and the first time I've heard of it too. Yes, it, it was released in the theaters. And got a lot of attention at the time, but no one really talks about it that much anymore. So what was your uh, initial reaction then to it? Let's start, go from there. I really enjoyed it. It's not really the kind of movie I would have chosen to watch for myself, but I really enjoyed it. It was really good at sucking you in, of course, that designed that way, kind of like a reality TV show kind of sucks you in and keeps you watching sometimes, even if you don't want right. to. And I found it, because even though I enjoyed it and it was very interesting, it still was very tense and very stressful. So it was kind of like uncomfortable, yet pleasurable at the same time. I think that's actually a very interesting way of looking at it. I mean, I think it's very accurate, but the film, this is my third time, I think, for seeing it. I saw it when it was first released in the theater. It was that time when everybody's looking for the next independent feature and everything. It got good reviews. I went to see it. You know, I, I was really taken by it. But it does capture what reality show competitions do. And I often find myself angry while watching it because I don't really like reality shows. I don't really like reality competition shows. And there are a couple of reasons for it. One is I think they often depend too much on humiliating the people involved to yeah. some degree and making fun of them. And I just don't enjoy that. I always keep thinking, oh, my God, what if I was on the show? What would they be doing to me? And I, I just don't <laughs> like doing that. Mm-hmm. But what I also dislike about them is the way they do suck you in. And 
what I say is why I dislike it is they're insincerely sincere. When most people create art, they are trying to manipulate you. Mm -hmm. Filmmakers, authors, poets, they're manipulating you. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get emotion out of you or they're trying to rethink or they're trying to get something from you. But they don't lie about it. They say, yeah, this is what we do. This is art. We are manipulating you. And we're hopefully we're doing a good job of it. And we're not going to lie about that. Reality shows lie about it. They say, we are not manipulating you. This is reality. <laughs> you no. Know? Right. Yeah, this isn't fake. We haven't done anything to this. And I'm going, this isn't true. This isn't. You can call it reality, but we all know it's not. It's right. pure manipulation. And then I get mad at myself for being sucked in. Because... <laughs> I took it sucked in, and I'm going, what is wrong with me? I keep saying I'm not going to get sucked into these things, and I get sucked into this insincere sincerity and emotional manipulation. Right. And I think that's one of the brilliant things about this, because what they're sucking you into is not a dating show or The Bachelorette or couples on an island or even the real world. They're sucking you in to a show about people ruthlessly killing each other yeah yeah it starts off with the bang literally right <laughs> as brooke smith pregnant goes into a convenience store and shoots someone right down in front of everybody and you know something's a little off because people don't scatter right yeah they're perfectly normal uh-huh yeah because they know what's going on. And, you know, the great line is, well, what do I do with the body? And he says, don't ask me. Let, you know, let the people take take care of the body. I don't really care what you do. Do you have any yogurt or whatever? Bean dip, yeah. craving, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was a great way to open it, yeah. And it sets it up very well. Then it goes, these are the five people. And you're horrified and you're laughing. And you're horrified and you're laughing. And it's just, it's a, quite a film. Mm -hmm. from that perspective some of the actors have now gone on you see brooke smith a lot mm. and merritt weaver has now become a breakout star now um, which which one was she merritt weaver is the young girl oh uh, okay. the teen and she went on she became big won an emmy for nurse jackie and most recently in the the long-term series on netflix unbelievable about mm. the women being raped she's one of the police two police officers mm. along with tony collette and she has a new show on hbo and brooke smith is actually in unbelievable too they don't have any scenes together she's a therapist that gets it right at the very end and then will arnett it is just a wild wild ride that just doesn't let up did you have any parts of the the story that really stood out for you that that were the most interesting parts well I mean, of course, I enjoyed the human, the human story. And that was kind of to be expected. You know, it starts off with all the flash and the this and the that. And then and then it gets deeper into their stories. And, and I really appreciated that. And I wasn't I assume we can give spoilers, right? That's oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Spoil away. Away. That ship I, was, I wasn't, you know, I was just kind of going along for the ride. So I wasn't actively deciding like, oh, who do I think is going to win this? But I was definitely rooting for Don, the lead character, 
to win this. But of course it makes sense, kind of like how I said about Best in Show, that it doesn't make sense if you've won in the past from a writer's perspective to have them win again because it's like the obvious choice. And then so of course they go for the underdog, the guy who like wants to die and then decides he doesn't want to, who's dying anyway from cancer. I, I guess I just liked the more human side to it. And I was kind of surprised that, because I thought they were going to do that with everybody, but the old guy, they didn't really get into his whole thing a lot, which I found kind of surprising. Right. He's just, he just doesn't want to be any part of it. And that, and I think like for me, because like you say, he wants to get out of it. I guess in the beginning, I had some, or throughout, I had some logistical questions that did kind of distract me. Like, well, how do they make him do it? And why doesn't he, why don't they just, you know, and then I kind of answered those questions for myself, but I found them a bit distracting. And then the other question I had too is like, was when you say that they won, as far as I can tell, when they win, they just get to play again and again and again, right? They don't ever stop playing. Is that true? I think there's some implication if you win three times, okay. you're free. Because Don keeps saying, if I win this time, I'm right. free. Yeah, makes but, sense. But you, okay. And that's one of the reasons you almost want to cheer her on. She's pregnant, and if she wins this time, she's free. It's sort of like in the Hunger Games. You win, right. theoretically, you never have to come back. But you're all right. That is one of the, it is a movie you either go with or you don't go with. Because they there are some things that aren't explained. The other reason why, of course, you want to shoot the other people is if you don't, they're going to shoot you. But the question is, why did this ever come about? Why was it ever allowed to happen? The government has to approve it. Right. You know. Right. It's crazy. And then also, too, you just like, yes, it's like you say the other people will shoot you. But why couldn't they just all kind of reach some sort of pact or agreement to not kill each other? Kind of like with Don and the other guy that was left standing, you know, and then. Yeah. Of course, it made sense because at that time they took her baby and then there were stakes involved. But before they took her baby, I didn't really know what kind of leverage this show had over them. And I actually thought for a while that they were going to team up and kill the other, like kind of form an alliance and kill the other people. I'm surprised they didn't do that. But well, I mean, that is the thing. If they all just said, no, we're not going to do it. Right. There's no explanation as to what happens if they all just refuse to do it. As you said, you could imagine basically that you get killed by the organizers of the game, but they never say that. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing you either go with or you don't go with. Because, yeah, that is sort of a flaw. What it is, this is just takes the idea of a reality show and takes mm-hmm. it to its nightmarish proportions with right. the idea that we allow, why does anybody participate in a reality show at all. I mean, and, and the yeah. thing is, the other thing also is that they don't really win anything except to live. Yeah, they exactly. They don't get money. They don't seem to get like endorsements. If you're on the real world, often what you do is you spend a large amount of your life going around, not to Comic-Con, but you go around to the equivalent uh-huh. of the real world Comic-Con, where you go from place to place and have these shows and people show up and they take your picture and get your autograph and you talk about what your experience was like on the show. They don't even seem to have this here. You know, well, I have to make the the Comic-Con next month for the Contenders show where we have all the surviving winners of the Contenders show, which there probably aren't very many because there's only been seven and and Dawn has won the last two. And it seemed like she was the reigning champion. I thought she was the one that had won the most rounds. Well, yeah, she's won the last two. Uh Uh-huh. So two out of seven, that tells you how bad the previous five had done. Yeah. And that is something. This is the seventh season, and it's a big ratings hit. And it is just a wild, bitter, vicious commentary on reality shows. And I think it managed to hit that sweet spot of being outrageous, vicious, and at the same time, having 
like in Best of Show, I think the characters are not quite real. They're kind of not made fun of, but they're kind of and not mocked, but they're they're sort of comical characters. They're all tend to be comical characters. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they all become very real. Mm-hmm. And you start buying into these people just killing each other and, and making their own deals with morality and what's right and what's wrong. Right. Like that lady who was really religious and you thought she wasn't right. really going to kill anybody. And then all of a sudden she's like a sniper, you know. Well, yeah, she had that brilliant idea that worked. Yeah. Of bringing everybody to the mall, pretending to be an underground that rescues people from these games. Mm -hmm. And then she ends up being responsible, not directly, one indirectly and one directly for two characters death. And you both go how horrible. And then you also go, well, that's two down. Now we only have three left. So (laughs) you're sort of caught up in the show again as to who's going to win. Yeah. And I liked how, you know, each of the characters, of course, was sort of a type, but also they were against type. Like, for example, there was the pregnant mom, but she was like very like tough. And then there was like, as we mentioned, the religious lady, but she was like, you know, like you were talking about that she bends morality to kind of suit this situation. And then there was like the super tough Italian guy who looks like, you know, he could be in the mafia, but like he's the first to get killed. So yes. like they played against her expectations and even just like gender role expectations and things like that, um, which I appreciated so that it wasn't just like a sort of a stereotypical kind of characters in the competition. Dawn, you know, Brooke Smith, I mean, she's this, she's this incredibly mean and rude and vicious, just constantly yelling at her handlers and at her driver and yelling at everybody. Sort of at first, you go, oh my God, what is wrong with her? But after a while, you kind of like her for yelling at all these people. Well, yeah, well, because obviously it must be so stressful. She's been living her life for quite a a while. I don't know how long exactly of just like she could die at any moment, you know? So it's almost like she deserves to to be that way because she's like in constant combat. Nobody else around is, you know? The... The nurse, I think that's Mary Louise Burke. There is one line that I did remember hearing it the first time, though I'd sort of forgotten it. There is the suggestion that she actually euthanizes people. Oh, okay. Right. So that's how she knew what she was doing. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she said that, you know, I've never killed anybody. Well, you know, I may have helped them on yeah. their way. Yeah. And, and then I love the scene when, of course, we all know what's going to happen. Dawn gives birth in the middle of everything. <laughs> and the nurse, the nurse says, I, I don't want to deliver it. I don't want to do this. And this shows the nurse's kind of weird morality because mm-hmm. she has no problem killing Dawn, even though Dawn is pregnant. And that would probably mean the death of the child. She can't yeah. kill her while the baby is coming out. Yeah, yeah, I thought that scene was really was really interesting, and of course, it's sort of like a very climactic scene. But and and but also, I didn't like Don had the opportunity to kill her first, and then she was like, put the gun down, and then and then she broke her water, and I didn't know why she hesitated killing her. That is sometimes I did sort of have an issue at times in the film. I thought at times it would have been easier for these people to either kill or not be killed. Mm-hmm. I think in many ways the actress and the director does a very good job of finessing a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But I think you do have a have a point. Sometimes, you know, like James Bond in his movies, why didn't you kill him when you had a chance? <laughs> you know? <laughs> One of the interesting things about it, Daniel 
Minahan has never really gone on to write and direct much again. He did write an earlier film called I Shot Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend seeing. It's based on a true story about the woman that shot Andy Warhol with a bravura performance by Lily Taylor. And you can see some of the uh, trenchant and confrontational style that he is here. But he's, in many ways, now has become a producer and director, and you'll see him show up on a lot of television shows. He's director for Game of Thrones, director for Deadwood. Actually, I'm kind of sorry that he hasn't gone on to do more writing. Yeah, you know, I am too, because I did visit, I haven't heard of him before, and I went to his IMDb page earlier today and and saw that too. And it was funny, because the thing that he directed right after this, at least according to that, was like two episodes of The L Word, which I thought was kind of funny, and that was like his first TV gig. So yeah, it is kind of unfortunate, I feel like, you know, but I I also understand it. I think a lot of creatives, they go where the jobs are, and at the end of the day, it's like, I guess that that pays the bills, and and, uh, maybe this was more of a passion project. I assume you have numbers on how well this did financially? No, actually I don't, because it didn't seem to come up that much on Wikipedia or anything like that. It certainly wasn't a high-budget film. But I, I'm not aware that it particularly lost money or or was a bomb. It did grow out partially out of his earlier days working in television. When he pitched it to producers in Hollywood, one of the responses he got is, can you make it more sexy and less violent? <laughs> right. Which would have changed uh, the whole thing. How could you make it less violent? It's about killing people. Yes. I mean, you know, that's that's sort of what it's about. It's uh, He says this influence for, was Videodrome. Westworld, Rollerball. I'm not quite sure I see Westworld in it, but certainly Videodrome and and Rollerball. But in many ways, it's really another version of what is one of the older tropes in storytelling, and that is The Most Dangerous Game, which is a short story where a man gets shipwrecked on an island and ends up with the person on the island, purposely shipwrecks people, rescues them, and then hunts them down. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, the short story was written in 1924. There was a movie in 1932. You see it in all sorts of, of places. It, even the original Star Trek had an episode highly influenced by the most dangerous game called The Squire of Gothas. And you'll see it in Robert Altman's, probably his worst film, Quintet. And you'll see this over and over again. Any movie you see where someone is being hunted down, this all goes back to this story, The Most Dangerous Game. That's interesting. We'll have to read that. Yeah. I'll talk a little more about the the movie later on. So, yeah, especially a melding of the the most dangerous game and reality shows. And this, of course, predates The Hunger Games. Mm, Right, yeah. I think the book was, the first book was written in 2008. Um, If there's anything else that you might want to add to the discussion here. Um, no, I mean, I was curious about the budget. I mean, I know we both agree it was low, I guess, because it was interesting because obviously it's like it's low budget, but I was also surprised at times how much it seemed like that they were doing and taking on. So I found that well, interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a combination of since it's a like a TV show and he's worked in TV, he knows all that. So he does mm-hmm. have that already. He has an unknown cast. They, they can be later. But at that time, I'd even forgotten that Brooke Smith was the lead. And then I saw it and I said, oh, Brooke Smith was the lead. And isn't that Merritt Weaver? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, the ending is kind of interesting. The original ending was supposed to be that the Brooke Smith, Don, and her former boyfriend decide to just leave. They put, put other guns mm-hmm. and they leave at, at the end instead of fighting it out. And the audience and the bystanders and the people watching beat them to death. 
Oh. And, but still with Michael Kajek, I believe, waking up in the hospital afterwards as, as uh-huh. the new champion. Here, I think it's a little ambiguous as to exactly what happened, what, but they're confronting each other in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. And she says, just give him my child and we'll leave and nobody gets hurt. And then suddenly it cuts and the narrator says, well, we lost all the film, so we're going to recreate what happens. So we know what happened in the recreation is not really what happened. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Cause I thought that was an interesting choice. They chose to do that. And I'm like, no, I really want to see them do it. But I see what you're saying. They're rewriting, they're rewriting it to make the show look good, which of course makes sense. Yeah. I, I suspect what really happened is they burst in, they shot them SWAT style. They couldn't let the audience or the TV people mm-hmm. know that. So they made up this thing about the girlfriend shooting them. Ah, uh, okay. But right. she says at the end, you know, she's in jail and says, I didn't do this. Uh-huh. I didn't shoot right. this. So I, I think it's a bit too subtle. I think we need a little more. Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting. And of course, I wish, you know, I mean, it would have had a little more redemption, but I think they didn't obviously want to put that in there. To see right. the characters basically break free from the system, you know, is what I would right. have ultimately wanted. But of course, you know, they had their reasons why they didn't <laughs> they didn't want to give us that. So. Yeah, and I don't know if they actually say it, but the implication is they're going to Canada. And sci-fi fiction's like this all the time. One of the places people always go is to Canada. For some reason, Canada is the land of the... the never goes along with these dystopian sci-fi <laughs> right. futures. Uh, Richard Ebert had an interesting comment on it. He said, it's not the idea that people will kill each other for entertainment that makes Series 7 jolting. What the movie correctly perceives is that somewhere along the line, We've lost all sense of shame in our society. So in closing out, first again, I want to thank you for being on the show. But I did ask you to choose a film or two as to a movie in the same vein of Best in Show that you might recommend. Yeah. So it had, um, cause <laughs> this was a hard one for me because if it included TV, I would definitely say, uh, Schitt's Creek, which we already talked about. Right. And, That's a good uh, choice. Yes. Can it, can it, can it be my choice? <laughs> yes, it can. Okay. Yeah. I'll say, I'll say Schitt's Creek. There's a couple other, um, mockumentaries that look really good, but that I haven't seen. My partner, uh, recommended butter and I watched the trailer and I'm really excited to check that one out, but I can't vouch for it. Have you seen it? Yeah. That's supposed to be really good. I haven't seen that myself. Mm-hmm. If you want to see another, there's always CSA. Confederate States of America, which is hmm. a mockumentary about the South winning the war, which is... Oh, oh, that sounds interesting. It is. It's very, very interesting. It's very good. For mine, I will first, I will choose two. The first one will be The Most Dangerous Game from 1932. It stars Joel McRae, Faye Ray, and a scene-stealing Leslie Banks. It's free code, and it's, it's very entertaining. The other one is a movie called The Tenth Victim from 1965. It's an Italian film. And I'm not really recommending this because it's a good film. Like many Italian Gaio and exploitation films, it's really not necessarily a good film. It's sort of campy and over the top. But it stars Marcello Mastriani and Monica Vitti. And it takes place in the future, the 21st century, which now isn't uh, the future, I guess, anymore. Right. And it has some of the same basic setup as Series 7, The Contenders. Basically what it is, is someone is chosen and they're chosen to be either a victim or a killer. And if you're a killer, you know who your victim is. If you're a victim, you don't know who your killer is, but he's coming after you. You have to do this 10 times. And five times you have to be the killer and five times you have to be the victim. 
It's kind of cappy. It's kind of fun. It's not great. Mm. So in closing out, uh, the next uh, and final thing we do is if you can give us some idea of what you're working on and what's coming up and what we can expect to see in the future. Yeah, so I'm currently editing a movie I directed called, uh, which I mentioned earlier, called Maybe Someday. It's a, a dramedy feature about a woman, uh, Jay, who I play because I'm an actor as well, separating from her wife and trying to move on with her life. And we, unfortunately, we only have 75% of it shot. Uh, we did have to suspend production because of COVID-19, but in the meantime, I'm keeping busy editing and the good news is that the shoot that we do have to, to do it's a four days four day shoot they're flashbacks and so they're self-contained with a new cast and so even if we shot it in a year although i'm hoping it'll be sooner than that it won't be a problem with like continuity and stuff so that'll be good oh, and I, say, um, I also want to say like if people are interested in keeping up to date on the film we recently got our social media up and running at maybe someday film on facebook and Instagram and maybe someday Jay on Twitter. Great. For cool. me, I'll run through my usual litany uh, that I say pretty much every week. I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings where I talk about issues of film and screenwriting. I'm a script consultant uh, and I have a uh, script consulting business. I have a Facebook page called Howard Kasner Script Consultation. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. Uh, these are horror, fantasy, sci-fi short stories. I've written the second edition of my screenwriting book, Ranting the Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. I'm an amateur photographer. You can find that on Instagram. You can find previous episodes of my podcast, Pop Art, on Podomatic, Anchor, Spotify, SoundCloud. I think I'm supposed to be on Google Play, so, but I'm not sure. I haven't been able to find it, but I've been informed by one of my streaming platforms that I'm supposed to be on it. Who knows? The next episode has been set up. I did recently a podcast for Cinema Recall with uh, The Vern, a film enthusiast and reviewer, where we chose five foreign films for people who are afraid of foreign films. And he then is going to be my guest next week. He chose the film RoboCop and I, in turn, chose the film THX1138, both sci-fi films about roboticized police corps. So, once again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Michelle, it was a great discussion. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And hopefully maybe sometime in the future uh, we can do this again. Yeah, that would be fun. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye.